there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Hey, this is Duray. And what if I say to the people in this episode, it's me, Sam Kai, and DR, as usual, talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. And then I sit down with Professor Brandon Garrett, who's at Duke University School of Law. I learned so much about forensic. His book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws of Forensics, will blow your mind. You must read it. I could talk to him for hours. He has truly changed the way I think about so much. Here we go. My advice for this week is rooted in an experience we had, had to make a decision uh, in the organizing work that I do. And people often talk about trusting your gut. But what they don't remind you is that part of it is also to explore all the options, to make sure you talk things through. And we had a decision to make about a path forward, and we talked it through. We fought it through as a team. It was a heated discussion. But we were able to have our ideas be in conflict without us being in conflict. And the decision that we rested on was the right decision in the end, but it didn't look right in the moment. There were a couple things that looked like they could have been paths forward. And that's often how it is. But make sure you talk it out. Make sure you think through the options. And we rested in a place that was where my gut thought we should, but I wanted to make sure that there wasn't something that I was missing. So make sure you think it out. Also trust your gut. Here we go. Hello, hello, Pod Save the People family. We're excited for another episode. My name is Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. This is Dre at DIY on Twitter. This week's a lot of stuff is happening around the billionaire space race with Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the Sir Richard Branson competing, or I guess they're not competing anymore, right? Because Sir Richard has won in that he's the first person to propel himself into space on something or another, right? This is the, he's the first one to go on the tourist flight to space, right? Yep. First tourist flight to space. There's been a lot of conversation about this billionaire space race. And so was wondering what you folks think about it. You know, it, it is wild to me to see these billionaires spending obscene, obscene amounts of money, like hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, investing it with the singular goal of putting themselves in space. Like that is the thing, right? Like they want to be the first to space. Apparently Richard Branson is now the first to space. And, you know, they want to make private space travel a thing, right? And to me, it is, first of all, like nobody should have billions of dollars in the first place to waste it all on just putting themselves in space for like some small amount of time, right? Like usually they're in space for, you know, a few seconds, a few minutes here and there. And like, that's it, right? Like all of this investment in putting yourself into space for that small amount of time so you can float around and like laugh for a bit and like go back down to earth. And that money could have been spent in so many different ways that could have helped so many different people. Um, So that's wild to me. The other piece is the premise of it seems to be off base as well because there is this sort of notion that they are pioneers in space travel and that because of the advancements that they are making and the investments that they are making, it's going to pave the way for ordinary people 
people like like you and I to go into space too and have a colony on the moon or go to Mars. Like those are like the <laughs> that's like the, the vision, right? But the reality is like those places are not fun places to be on. I don't care how advanced or how much money you have, right? Like I mean, you saw the Martian. Like we one small thing, one cut in the spacesuit, and you're gone, right? Like you go outside, you can't like eat anything but like frozen or dried food. Sam, you, you don't want to go to space. Huh? You know, like it sounds like the worst experience to me and that's what they're paying for like best case scenario you survive like that's the best case scenario and like barely so i don't know like what the what the hype is all about in terms of that like small bit of time it's all about the clout to say like i went to space and like nobody should have that amount of money to invest that much in that it's sort of wild 600 people have reserved two hundred and fifty thousand dollar tickets to go to space with virgin including tom hanks dicaprio bieber and that Lady Gaga. And I bring up Lady Gaga because I learned today that five years ago, Branson and Virgin, they were going to shoot Lady Gaga into space. And it was supposed to be this whole thing. She trained for it. And it didn't happen because the test flight crashed. So here we are again. Like you said, Sam, the best case scenario, you're going to go up and like see the moon and then turn back around. But the margin for error here is high. And I even think about the space shuttles that take off with NASA and the other governments. Like, they aren't even 100%. You know, we've all watched one of those things tank, and you're like, oh, this isn't good. So this just makes me nervous. But it is like, what a what a phenomenal example in the middle of a climate crisis and all this other stuff happening that you're just like, shoot me into space. I will also, I cannot wait. You know, I, of all the lists of people I've seen, I haven't seen a single black person on any of these lists. <laughs> Not a single black person's name on none of these lists. So I can't wait to see who... Who is the first black person who's like, shoot me in space. We got enough drama. Like, right joyriding in space is just not it. Speaking of celebrities, Lance Bass, the former NSYNC singer, was supposed to go fly to the International Space Station. Um, but in fact, he's gotten kicked off the flight because they didn't raise the $20 million that the Russians were charging uh, for the trip. So they kicked him out of the thing. He was supposed to be doing a reality show and, and whatnot. To Sam's point, this is an obscene amount of money. It really is. While there's a whole lot of ego and you know silliness involved, but this actually ushers in a new era in terms of trying to f- help find resources that will help us with climate change. Like there are some benefits to this, right? Like besides people just going to space for, you know, a weekend vacation, right? <laughs> this will enable more scientists, more researchers to do experiments and to uh, have more access to potential resources that could help us with issues like global warming. But for now, we're not talking about that. All we're talking about is the three rich boys and who's going to get there right. first. And I didn't see any scientists on that flight. <laughs> no scientists, no experiments were performed. Like, none of that additional value on, for Sam, humankind I'm just was to, I'm generated. I'm just trying to help the people out a little bit. <laughs> you really did. That was a nice... I was like, did I not read the, um, did I not read the announcement correctly? You really, you I, really tried I, on that I, I did. Saying. Come on. And it does Oof. look like there's a person of color there. Mm. Ish, I don't know. I could. You never know with these photos, but I can again. Like I said, 
I've not seen a single black person sign up for the space flights, and that is not a surprise. There's this quote from a historian, a space historian, and he says, the United States has a tremendous tradition of people taking their money and doing really inventive, interesting things with it, and I really support that. But as a historian, I always try to put these sort of things into perspective. And I think, well, it's great that people are spending a ton of money to do something that NASA did in 1961. Boom, boom. The last thing on this before we go into the news, because it is that that wild. Um, you know, there is this sort of like idea that humans will one day sort of colonize the moon and Mars and it'll be like this great place. And but climate change is getting so bad here, and it is right. But like the worst case scenario for the Earth is that it becomes the Moon or Mars. Like that's like literally, if we do the worst, if we mess everything up, it will be like as bad as the Moon or Mars. So like the whole premise is off. Like I don't get it. I don't get it. And it's like, should we really be supporting colonization again? You know, like been there, done that. Because <laughs> that surviving so it. Well. You know, <laughs> right? Didn't work out for us. No need to take it to another planet. Maybe white people should not be the people leading the expeditions. Been there, done that. You know, like, maybe we should figure out something new. We saw Avatar. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So my news is actually back down to earth, focused on the war in Afghanistan, which is still happening. So it's been about 20 years now since 9-11, almost 20 years. And the war in Afghanistan has been ongoing, the longest war in U.S. history. And... The Biden administration has announced that by August 31st, they intend to end the war in Afghanistan, sort of formally declare the war over. And they won't say mission accomplished, but they're saying the objective has been realized. So that is big news, right? We often don't hear about or don't even talk about what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Afghanistan, what's going on in Iraq, what's going on in all of the other places in which the US military maintains a presence, maintains a lot, a lot, a lot of taxpayer resources and weaponry, et cetera, um, and in many places has seen a lot of resistance to that uh, and opposition to US sort of military imperialism across the globe. Um, in Afghanistan, you know, for 20 years, there's been this ongoing fight with the Taliban. Now it appears that there might be, when the U.S. leaves, the Taliban, there are these fears that they will sort of retake over. Um, But I wanted to bring this to the conversation because we often don't hear about or talk about what's happening in all of the places where the U.S. maintains a military presence, especially Afghanistan. Um, I remember, you know, 9-11 was 20 years ago when we first got into this war. This was, you know, I was 11 years old. Now we all grown. So, like, this has been like a... A generational experience. There are many folks who are serving who like weren't even alive when the war began. So uh, it's good to see that there's going to be a troop drawdown. Now, what that means in practice is there are still going to be U.S. troops on the ground in Afghanistan even after August 31st, um, but there is a dramatic reduction. So when you look at historically uh, over the course of the 20-year war, um, there was a height of 100,000 U.S. troops. It's sort of the height of that war, uh, and that has declined down to about 3,500 troops today in Afghanistan. Now, based on this announcement, they are hoping to and projecting uh, to reduce that down to between 650 troops and 1,000 troops uh, by August 31st. Uh, And those troops are supposed to be guarding the U.S. Embassy uh, as well as the airport. Uh, And that's sort of what the announcement is. So still going to be, you know, U.S. troops, a small number relatively, uh, but this does uh, signify a pretty large reduction uh, over time in general and even relative to where we are today. You know, I'm not a military strategist or a State Department official or what have you, but it seems to me from a layman's perspective that 
right? This is an unwinnable conflict for us. And so on the one hand, you know, President Biden is saying, I don't want to continue to sacrifice American lives when there's not a clear like win on the horizon. And I can appreciate that. Um, there's also the issue of there are lots of Afghan um, translators and interpreters who have helped the United States and their fate seems to be in limbo. I was watching some news program and many of them are on the run because the Americans have effectively abandoned them. And, you know, Mr. Biden has said, anybody who has helped us, there's a place for you here. But I, I saw a story about this one interpreter who applied for a visa to the United States five years ago. He doesn't have a job anymore because he's not translating for the military, so he can't feed his wife and his three kids. He's on the run because the Taliban or whoever, right, know that he was working for the Americans. And he's like, listen, I don't have a whole lot of time. Like, somebody needs to get me and get out of here. And apparently there are thousands of Afghans who supported the United States military, and there is not a clear pathway for them. Um, and like at the end of the day, for me, if you, you know, you're talking about 20 years ago, I mean, before the United States was in Afghanistan, the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan, same, like literally same playbook, same thing, go in to avoid terrorism, stay there for 20 years or whatever, without actually helping to build infrastructure, leave. And then the next superpower comes in some years later. And so the question for me is, what about the regular people? What happens to the fate of the Afghani people when the political powers continue to rage and there's no deep, deep investment in, in nation building? In fact, President Biden said, we're, we're not nation building. Okay, so we've occupied a country for the last 20 years and now we're just out. And we hope that the leaders there will fix it up. I mean... It feels yucky. And at the same time, if it's an unwinnable war, how long do we keep our men and women stationed in Afghanistan? It's a hard call to make, I think. You know what this does too, that it's such a reminder of the way the spirit of colonization works, that you come into a country, you take over everything, and then when you leave and things fall apart, it becomes this notion of like, look, those people can't control it. They don't have, it's like, no, you destabilized it. Like you, you were the power vacuum for so long in such an incredible way. And I was reading that the Taliban still controls a third of the country. So it's like, you know, you went in with this, like, we're going to do it. It's like, no, 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 you're going to leave. The Taliban is already strong, was strong, remains strong. And now the government, the other governments in the region are negotiating with the Taliban anyway. So it's like, what did you, you didn't nation build, you didn't build infrastructure. Like you just participated in the destabilization. And while it is good that we're getting out, it is just a reminder of how this is both not new. This has happened before. This just like keeps happening uh, and hopeful that like there's respite one day where this is just not the way that we do foreign policy across the country. I know we're not talking about Haiti, but there is something to be said for like a continuity of government. And there, I've been thinking more and more about the presidential shifts like every four years. So you get like a Trump four years where like, you know, what is foreign policy? And we will be making up for those four years for a very long time. And like, I don't know what the fix is structurally, but when you get a, a real bad dip, it is just a nightmare, not even like a theoretical nightmare. It's like a legitimate nightmare for a lot of people. Don't go anywhere. More Potting the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. 
which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Potsy of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. My news today uh, connects a very important Black Girl Magic event that happened this weekend with a really important historical story that is not always told. And uh, this is about the National Spelling Bee. So Zaila Avant-Garde, a little... Black girl from New Orleans won the Scripps National Spelling Bee on Thursday night, and it was amazing to watch. I was in an airport like restaurant, 
And I was like, wait, I think the little black girl just won the spelling bee. And sure enough, she did with the $50,000 prize. And if you haven't already heard, she has three or four different Guinness World Records for her basketball skills, dribbling and juggling. And spelling is kind of her side hustle. Um, And she's probably the most amazing 14-year-old you've ever seen. One of the people who inspired her is a little black girl named Magnolia Cox. And Magnolia Cox was a young African-American woman from Akron, Ohio, who uh, went on to compete in the National Spelling Bee in 1936. In fact, she was crushing it in Akron and had won all of the spelling bees. She was the Akron's spelling bee champion. She had also been in a national competition and she and another little black girl named Elizabeth Kenny of New Jersey, um, they were both selected to participate in the National Spelling Bee in Washington. And, you know, this was a huge moment for folks in Akron and for black people. And you know how we do, right? Time for Magnolia to go to Washington to compete in the spelling bee. We put together, we had rent parties. We bought her some new clothes and new suitcase and did her hair and had her all gussied up and ready to go. In fact, what she experienced both on her way to Washington and into Washington uh, were tremendous, tremendous instances of segregation and discrimination. In fact, the Akron newspaper folks kind of tried to prepare the family and the reporter who went with them for the kind of segregationist garbage that they were going to encounter in D.C. And it was everything from... You know, they were riding on an integrated train, but when they got to Maryland, they needed to be moved to the colored section to the fact that they were staying in Washington at the home of very prominent African-Americans, but only because the Willard Hotel, which is kind of the big fancy hotel in town and where all of the other spelling bee participants were staying, where all of the white spelling bee participants were staying, would not allow Magnolia and her mom to stay there. In fact, when she went to the actual competition, or right before she went to the competition, they had a uh, dinner at the Hamilton Hotel, and they made her and her mother walk through the back door and through the kitchen in order to get to the dinner for the finalists for the National Spelling Bee. And then, of course, when she got on the stage, she's up here crushing it, right? She's killing it, word after word after word after word. In fact, um, she had a dictionary that, you know, in segregation times, black kids didn't have the same kinds of resources as white kids. That might still be happening now, but we're not talking about that. Um, but in Magnolia's dictionary, there were some words that ended up in the spelling bee that she didn't know and she started that weren't in her dictionary so she hadn't studied them and little sis still slayed and then when it looks like she's gonna win you know the system does what the system does they ended up giving her a word um, the word was nemesis and uh, while nemesis now is a regular noun nemesis is actually a proper noun it's the word of a a greek goddess and Proper nouns are not supposed to be used. In fact, no capitalized words shall be given was part of the rules. And so when Magnolia misspelled the word, her teacher, her white teacher, 
kind of said to the judges, oh, no, 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 no. First of all, that word shouldn't be here. And y'all are just mad because this little black girl is about to win. And she called it out on the air. It was on CBS. And she called it discrimination. She said the judges were uncomfortable with the idea of a black winner. And of course, the judges ruled against her and Magnolia had to come home. But she had a stiff upper lip. She stood there. She took it. Her teacher cried, uh, but she went back to Akron and was still lauded and feted and celebrated. Ultimately, though, she really suffered from this experience. There were supposed to be college scholarships. There were supposed to be all of these things that never materialized. And she ended up uh, dying at the age of 53 in 1967. Um, but when she stood on the stage of the spelling bee on Thursday night, Zaila Avant-Garde told reporters that she thought of Magnolia and what she had endured 85 years earlier. And so, um, I love these connections. One, I'm just super proud of Zaila Avant-Garde and what she accomplished with the spelling bee. And I'm even more excited that she knew the history and was able to connect the history and bring out this little known story um, so that we know that little black girl's been spelling it up for decades. This was so cool to see Zayla win the spelling bee because it just like blew up so quickly. You know, all of a sudden you're seeing videos everywhere. And it wasn't even just like the spelling bee videos, right? It was videos of her like playing basketball and being amazing and like doing all of these other tricks and just having a repertoire of skills um, that wasn't limited to spelling, wasn't limited to that competition. Um, she's just an amazing person, amazing talent in so many different ways. And then to hear the many ways and the many barriers that have prevented that historic moment from happening in the past. Uh, the people who came before her who were denied that opportunity, who were, who there were so many different attempts to stop from even having a chance, right? You know, this is a story that was about a spelling bee, right? Which is not, you know, often, like we hear these stories about like not having access to, you know, schools, like the big, big things, healthcare, but it's like all the things, right? It is like the opportunity to be in a competition around spelling. It is around like the opportunity to go to DC, right? And to do that in a way where you are not demeaned and put in segregated facilities, segregated public accommodations. And like all of that is compounding. Um, and it's a reminder of like the daily indignities of racism and white supremacy, the ways in which that has created barriers that have prevented so many achievements from happening to date. Um, and now we're starting to even learn about those histories, those stories in contexts that I like didn't think to ask questions about or even um, didn't think that I would learn more about. So I think it's really cool to see this. Um, it's really cool to see Zayla like just rocking it, killing it, like blowing up so fast. You know, I can't wait to see like what she does, what she goes off and does, because clearly this is a like, like not even a start for her because she's been started, um, but it's certainly not a finish. What I like too is that she's such a great example of what humility really means. Humility, and my father used to always say humility is power under control. And she just has such a like beautiful uh, embrace of her own power. She's like, yeah, I'm a good speller. I'm a great basketball player. I'm, you're like, I love it. Like just like an incredible sense of self so young. I also love that, you know, her last name is Avant-Garde and it, her father changed it from Heard in homage to John Coltrane, which I love. Yes. Uh, this idea that like for years, Coltrane found a whole host of other avenues for success. And, you know, I know, Kai, you said it, but I just wanted to read off 
is that because she's a gifted basketball player already, she already has three world records, one for the most basketballs dribbled simultaneously. It was six basketballs for 30 seconds. The most basketballs bounces, 307 bounces in 30 seconds, and the most bounce juggles in one minute, 255 using four basketballs. Uh, she also becomes the first winner of the spelling bee from Louisiana. So... Shout out to her. It is so interesting how quickly these things move because all of a sudden she was at the ESPYs. I was like, how did it's like she just <laughs> won the spell and be like five minutes ago. She's at the ESPYs. It was so it's cool. It's cool. And it's cool to see just a community of black people support her. The only thing that I was annoyed by on the internet was people calling her a woman. And you're like, she's a girl. She's she a young sure woman. Is. She is a child. Not in high so school yet. Yes. So yeah, stop yeah. doing the like the woman. You're like, don't like let her be a kid and let her be the dopest kid that we've ever seen. Don't make her grow up faster than she needs to. My news is about an article called Waiting for Justice uh, in CalMatters.org. It's about the California justice system. I'm rarely surprised by things, but one of the things that I will tell you is that there just is not as much data about the judicial process as you think. So, like, they're not amazing data sets about judges' decisions to set bail. There's not amazing data about how long people are waiting for trial. Like, there's just not enough. And this article is about the sheer number of people who are stuck in jail waiting for court cases. And I think that, you know, part of the reason I'm bringing it here is that it surprised me a little bit that we can't even track this stuff. It's like the people are in jail and we clearly don't have great information on that. But what was interesting is that their investigation showed that there are at least 1,300 people who have been incarcerated in California jails longer than three years without being tried or sentenced of anything. And of those, 332 people have been waiting in jail for longer than five years. They even know one man is in a Fresno County jail. He's awaiting trial in a double murder for nearly 12 years, almost 4,000 days from his original arrest. And as you can imagine, most of the people held in jail before their trials are black and brown. Many are low income. And you know, people have talked about bail before and the problems with bail. What I didn't know is that California's Judicial Council guidelines recommend that a felony case is wrapped up within 12 months. But here's the thing. The courts in California don't even have great data to track that. So like while they put that out as a guideline, like they don't know whether it is 12 months or not. Uh, the Cal Matters folks couldn't even get data from all of the court systems. And there's a host uh, that literally like don't know. So they note that the state's courts closed only about three quarters of felony cases in that time frame. Even that data was incomplete. Cal Matters also looked for records from all 58 county sheriff's departments in about 33 provided records, which showed 5,800 people who were behind bars for longer than a year without being sentenced for a crime. I was just going through it and looking, and it is just a reminder that, like, how do you prepare a defense? How do you do any of this stuff when you're held, whether it was bail or something else, or maybe it was a postponement? It makes sense to me that the plea deals are happening at a record rate. It makes sense to me that, like, people aren't getting a fair shot because this is just so wild and there's not even good data so that you can back into it so people can advocate so people know where to press and it renews my belief that like one of the roles that we should be electing people in and fighting for appointments will be like the clerk of the courts like the people who just manage the data processes of the court system to just like get this better so that we can actually be more precise and I think about these judge elections and like you know I was going to bring another piece of news here about a new data on how judges make decisions but like so much of that, too, is who's holding the judges accountable? Like what data are you using to hold judges accountable outside of individual cases? 
I don't know. So I wanted to bring that here. This is nightmarish, especially because for many of these people, you don't know if they are innocent or guilty. And if you're innocent and you've been sitting in jail for three years, this it, it brought to mind Khalif Browder, right? The young man in New York who was accused of stealing a backpack and waited for three years, most of the time in solitary confinement and literally like ended up committing suicide as a result of his experience. Like if you didn't do it and you sitting in jail for three years or whatever, like at the end of the day, all anybody is going to say is I'm sorry. Right. And Derek Chauvin got a trial pretty quickly. Right. I mean, that's a felony case. And so I feel like there's just, it's the same like lack of will when people are poor and colorful, but like we actually know how to systematize things and how to move processes along. And so to me, this is absolutely unacceptable. And until somebody, you know, really crusades against this, like where's the innocence project or where's somebody who is going to grab a state and suggest an express way to get through these cases? Or where's the group that's going to sue for people's right to a speedy trial? Like, that's a constitutional right. What's going on? Like, this seems crazy that nobody's doing anything about this. Yeah, Kaya, to your point, not only is it crazy, but it explains so much of what's actually happening in the context of the broader system of mass incarceration in the criminal justice system. So jails are of the pie, if you will, of mass incarceration. Like, most people are held in county jails. um, And they're held usually under a year, but as we're seeing, many people are held longer, way longer than you might even think. Um, and of those people, millions of people who are just cycling through these jails, three quarters of the people in jail at any given time have yet to be convicted of anything. Three quarters. So like you have this system, the biggest piece of which is the county jails, and you have all of these millions and millions of people cycling through this system the vast majority of whom have not even been convicted of a crime. Like, that's the system that we have. And, like, people don't really realize that, right? That is what characterizes the system of mass incarceration. And when you compound that with all of the issues with data collection, how not only are these systems doing a terrible job even tracking what's happening in the context of jails, let alone notifying people, making sure that people who are eligible for release are getting released on time, because a lot of people, because of that terrible record keeping, they end up in jail for much longer than they otherwise should have been in jail. And beyond that, you have an entire sort of framework that is holding people who are innocent until proven guilty in jail on these extremely uh, obscene levels of bond, right? Like where you have to pay thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars in order to get out. Um, That predominantly impacts people who don't have the money. So the people are being held are people who have yet to be convicted of a crime and who are too poor to pay their way out of jail. And like, that's the system that we've constructed. And so like, we have to be dismantling that system. We have to be pushing, you know, in Colorado, there was an effort to pass legislation that ultimately failed due to two Democratic votes in committee that would have uh, released a substantial proportion of people who are currently being held uh, in jail. Um, in Colorado. Um, And so there are similar bail reform bills being considered across the country. um, And that's such an important piece of this because that is what is responsible for holding so many people for so long. And then you have all those other issues that then make that even worse for people where they're held beyond that. What was also interesting is to hear them say that oftentimes after two or three or four years, they simply don't have the evidence to prove the case. And so the case gets dismissed, right? Meanwhile, 
people's whole entire lives are wrecked. There's the example of the young man who has lost his job and his wife is divorcing him and, you know, his life is crumbling apart and he's sitting in a cell for 23 hours a day and we don't know if he did it or he didn't do it. And that just, I mean, this is my, you know, you all know this, I've told you this, but I'm about to confess it on the whole entire podcast. I am deathly afraid of all things related to jail. And like, this is my worst nightmare. I didn't do it. And I get arrested and I'm sitting in jail for a year or two years or three years because you can't bring it to trial. Like in America in 2021, although I guess America in 2021 has showed us some other obscene things. So I don't know. I will say the other thing that I didn't appreciate, I'm working on a case now and what the prosecutors said in public is like DNA evidence, da da da. And then you dig a little deeper and you realize that's just not true. But you know, you imagine how they say to you, they're like, Kaya, we have DNA evidence that you did it out. And you're like, I didn't do it. But they're like, we have DNA evidence. Mind you, hasn't gone to court yet. You plead out because you're just like, well, they got DNA evidence. And you're like, that is, they use all these tricks to get you. And you're like, yeah. but how do you, how do you intervene? It makes me so, it just frustrates me to no end. The question of clerks and judges and the, because it's not jails who are keeping the people, right? It's the court system that is not operating the way it ought to operate. And I don't know where the locus of control sits to make changes in that system, but it seems everybody is like, yeah, this shouldn't be, but what's the remedy, I think, is the thing that left me unsatisfied with this article. Y'all, my news this week is from NBC, and it's just a joyful, happy one, um, which I'm always looking for, but it's about juvenile reworking his hit, back that thing up into a pro-vaccine situation vax that thing up so if you haven't seen this video please check it out it's on youtube you've probably already seen it by now but i just loved it it made me feel good and it also you know i think as we see um numbers growing with the delta variant i think it's important to realize that you know we still are really behind particularly in the southeastern states when it comes to vaccination numbers so places like mississippi georgia um, Alabama, we really do need to get the numbers up there. So not that this juvenile vax that thing up is going to be the solve to get us there. But I definitely think things like this that, you know, kind of touch on the, the cultural aspects of things, I think, are, are extremely helpful. Um, so check that out. I think that this song is actually part of a promotional partnership for BLK or Black. I don't know what they're going by, but it's a dating app. So no endorsement of the dating app. I don't know anything about this dating app. It's for um, connecting Black men and women. But I will say that I did very much like this rework of Vax That Thing Up. All right, y'all. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And now my conversation with Professor Brandon Garrett, the author of a newer book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. You must listen. Professor Garrett, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you. Now, I am fascinated to talk to you because I have a ton of questions and we have not spoken before. Your new book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. I've seen like Radley Balco write about this a little bit, but I still have a ton of questions. So before I start with those, can you just give us a sort of lowdown about how you got to study this? Like what was your, what's your journey to the topic? Sure. Like most lawyers, you know, I wasn't so good with math or science. I was more into words than numbers. And all of a sudden, you know, fast forward 20 years since law school and I'm working with statisticians and crime labs and forensic scientists and that's not what I originally planned. I originally went to law school because I wanted to sue police and this was like, you know, many police brutality and racial profiling crises ago, but you know, I was in New York at around the time of the Amadou Diallo shooting and the street crimes unit and the Abner Louima case and so I was, you know, working on lawsuits all around reforming police and compensating victims of police brutality. And I ended up after law school at the law firm of Cochran, Neufeld, and Scheck. And so, you know, Johnny Cochran, obviously well-known, and he had met Barry Scheck and Peter Neufeld through their work in the OJ case, right, including the use of, you know, DNA in that case. But Barry Scheck and Peter Neufeld had founded the Innocence Project, and their experience had been that People who are exonerated by DNA often didn't really have lawyers representing them when they wanted to sue police and prosecutors to get compensation. And so that was my introduction to forensics. And, but there, you know, it was kind of some of those cases, you know, one slice of it was, you know, this is a triumph of forensics. You know, DNA freed these people. Forensics good, traditional evidence bad. You know, DNA freed them. They falsely confessed. The eyewitnesses got it wrong. Informants got it wrong. What I learned over time, though, was that although DNA set these people free, problematic forensics often played a role in their wrongful convictions too. That was the beginning of my wake-up call on what is still wrong post-DNA with forensics in this country. Can you just level set with us, like, what is a crime lab? And I ask because I, I don't want to make any assumptions, and all I know about crime labs is CSI, and I might be wrong. So what is a crime lab? Yeah, crime labs aren't, aren't as uh, glamorous looking as on CSI. People don't dress in leather, and there aren't so many people all around working on cases together. There aren't, like, the big screens or anything. You know, it's good for all of us if, like, TV makes our jobs look really cool. And, you know, as lawyers, you know, we, we benefit from that. It's great when uh, lawyers get to be the heroes on TV. And maybe it's been good for people going into forensics work to have, have their jobs made to look all glamorous. But crime labs can just be like, you know, an extra room or two in a police station. There are a lot of really small, what they call cop shops, uh, larger labs, maybe regional labs or labs for big cities or state crime labs, which may be, you know, a pretty big building. A big chunk of what they do, and, and they don't mean this literally, although sometimes it's turned into that, is doing drugs. Given the war on drugs, 
you know, you think about the quantities of drugs that sometimes get seized, it has to be tested. And they're testing blood alcohol, you know, in terms of DUI cases. And so that, that's like half of what uh, the average lab does is testing substances that are seized. The other half is trying to link evidence to individuals and or, or to firearms. You know, there are a lot of a lot of gun crime in this country and a lot of guns. And so there's efforts to look at the expended bullets or casings under a microscope and see if you can link them to weapons. A lot of people leave fingerprints still. And uh, even though fingerprinting has been around for a long time and you'd think like more criminals would wear gloves, latent fingerprints. They look at the fingerprints and try to compare them to fingerprints in a database. There's some stuff, you know, with like fibers and hair and other types of patterns that they try to compare. And then there's like a surprisingly small chunk, given what, how much people hear about it, using DNA. But, you know, a lot of crimes, there's no biological evidence to test. You can't really do much with DNA. Other crimes, especially sexual assaults, DNA can be really, really powerful. Labs also spend a lot of time just uploading DNA swabs from arrestees and the like to add to DNA databanks. So there's a lot of kind of databank work that labs do. Most of these labs are part of law enforcement or their budget comes from law enforcement. Sometimes they're even they're part of a prosecutor's office. There are very few independent labs where it's like a what we think of as like a science lab that's independent. Um, for the most part, they work for their clients are you know the police, and and that and that's where their money comes from, and that's how they see their role as a arm of law enforcement to help solve crimes. I know that there have been an effort before to separate them from being under the auspices of the police department because like what's true is true either it is the fingerprint or it's not or like it either is the dna or it's not did that go anywhere is that going anywhere is that do you think that they should be split or do you think they should be together i think they should be split and you know the national academy of sciences the leading science organization in the country they they made that recommendation really forcefully in 2009 so the recommendation has been around for a while there, there are very few labs are independent I talk in my book about the Houston Forensic Science Center, which is a leading example of an independent lab that's doing it right. But you know, just making the lab independent in terms of its budget and its leadership is not really enough if it keeps doing work in a way where there's no quality control. Right? No one wants to buy a product from a company that's independent and it's not part of a big chain, but it just sells you a lousy product. No one wants to get a test from an independent clinical lab that, that gets it wrong all the time. I would rather go to the public hospital that actually knows how to do a strep test right. And so, you know, independence is, could be important, but it's definitely not enough. And uh, unfortunately, whether labs are independent or not, for the most part in this country, they don't have good quality controls. They're not like clinical labs, if, whether it's a strep test or a COVID test, right? They're doing blind checks. They're testing the testers and they, they catch mistakes if, if there's some problem with the equipment or someone isn't well trained, they figure it out and get to the bottom of it. We don't do that when people's lives are at stake in criminal cases. And for too long, we've had labs do stuff, and they're called forensic science labs sometimes, but there's not a lot of science in their process or in in the work they do, and that's a a deeper problem. You know, why as a society we care more about getting strep tests right or cancer screenings right than fingerprint comparisons or firearms, you know, solving serious crimes? It's uh, hard to say, but, you know, maybe even some of the defund conversations can turn the right way, where if... Criticism is like, why are police doing so many deadly things in traffic stops and minor crimes? Why can't they focus on solving serious crimes? Well, if you want to solve serious crimes, you need to get the science right, get the forensic science right. Now, you also wrote about bite marks. What's the story with bite marks? I've heard people say that bite marks don't matter, that this is like fake science, but I've also seen a lot of TV shows that seems like the bite mark, that was the linchpin of why the case got solved. 
bite marks have become pretty notorious, and the larger scientific community is sort of horrified that this is even a thing. Uh, it's not clear whether there's any accuracy even to the decision when you look at some abrasion or reddish skin or something on someone's body, whether it came from a human bite or not. Most of us don't get into biting situations too often in our lives, although if you've had a toddler, like both of my kids went through a, a phase where they were biters, and you know, you, if you get bit, it's like the skin turns red right away, it's hard to see anything there. And there have been notorious cases where these forensic dentists came in and said, ah, it was the defendant's teeth to the exclusion of all others. He made that bite. And it turned out later that was actually insect bites. You know, when you're talking about a body that's been lying outside after a murder, all kinds of things happen to the skin, obviously. And so there's just been a whole chain, dozens of exonerations in these cases. Courts have, for the most part, not been responsive. They let it in, although the Texas Forensic Science Commission has said there's no reliability here. Bite mark comparisons shouldn't be used. There, there is information in teeth, uh, but one important thing to understand is like when we're talking about bites and the reddish abrasion on the skin, you know, skin isn't a good way to preserve information from teeth. There's a different use of dentition when bodies are found. Dentists can get brought in to compare to the molds that they have like in a dentist's office to identify human remains. And that's different because you have a lot of information if you have the full set of teeth. There's some sense that that may be quite reliable, or at least you know a lot more because you have, you're comparing full sets of teeth to full sets of teeth. But bites, you know, we don't bite with very many of our teeth, and the front teeth are the ones that we bite with, and they're the ones that don't have a lot of information on them. They're not like molars. They're not complicated. When they've done some very limited studies asking these forensic dentists to take test questions, basically, their error rates have been astronomical, like worse than chance. And that said, they haven't been properly tested. They know it's a study. They know they're being tested. So for those reasons, uh, the scientists, including the National Academy, have said, like, it's not clear that there's a there there. It's not clear that there's any reliability to what they do. And unfortunately, they don't say that in court. They say, you know, we've connected these teeth with the defendant. They've adopted some more roundabout cautious language just in recent years because of all the criticism. But they've shown no sign of stopping. And, uh, you know, they tend not to work in crime labs. They tend to be dentists that kind of sideline and get paid extra to be experts in, in criminal cases. And again, like there are no statistics. We have no idea how rare or common it is to have any particular aspects to your teeth. And we have no idea whether there's any accuracy to the connections that they're making between a mold of someone's teeth and some, you know, reddish abrasion on a, on a victim's body. I've been just personally interested in, and as an organizer, in the difference between uh, the coroner and the medical examiner, because it blew my mind yeah. when I first learned that we elect coroners. I was like, that is wild. And in the book, yeah. you talk about what does it mean to be qualified? What's your take on this? I mean, it's kind of amazing, right? That the, a coroner versus a medical examiner, the one difference is, you know, medical examiner is supposed to be hired as someone who's, who's a pathologist, who has training, who can say some things about a cause of death. There are a lot of concerns with the methods there, and we saw some of those aired out in the Derek Chauvin trial and you know, what happened after George Floyd's murder and when he had an independent pathologist brought in. And there was just a really interesting recent study that Dr. Isil Dror and some colleagues worked on showing how pathologists can be biased by information about the race of the victim, and they get all kinds of information that's not necessarily relevant to cause of death that can bias them. You know, you really worry about their independence and their bias when it's a police officer that's being investigated for a role in a homicide. But all that said, that's with like medical examiners that are trained in pathology. There are questions about how good pathologists are, and, and they, like, they acknowledge there's a lot of uncertainty as to how someone died. But then you have elected coroners who don't have to have any medical background. They can be, you know, just the person who runs for office and wins. 
And sometimes, you know, obviously we're a democracy and it's good to have someone who the people trust to serve the people as their representative. But a coroner isn't supposed to be the people's representative. I mean, it should be someone who, who knows something about how to identify a cause of death and not someone who wins a, an electoral contest. But, you know, yeah, around the country we have coroners who, are, who may have no qualifications. It could be like a local funeral home director or, or anyone, and that's pretty shocking. I like you. I, I was I couldn't believe it because I mostly lived in cities where there was a medical examiner that had like a more professional office. I had no idea that in so much of the country, you had this coroner system. You sort of complicated for me in the book the role of DNA. You know, especially watching TV, DNA was sort of that was the gold standard. It was like this is the difference between true and false, and you seem to suggest that like. Ah, the way the labs run or like there are other things that can influence the way that we think about true and false with regard to DNA. What does that look like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, some DNA cases are simple and I started the same way you did. And, you know, a lot of the cases I worked on early on and that I wrote about in my first book were DNA exonerations. A lot of those were sexual assaults where it's just, okay, there's female DNA and there's male DNA and there's a mixture. You isolate the male DNA. This is not that male. Someone else was like that is straightforward. They talk about those as like silver bullet DNA cases where you can isolate the person who committed the crime, that's the one who did it. But, you know, most crimes, you know, if you're testing like the handle of a gun, well, you don't know how many people handled that gun. And, and it may be a mixture, and you may not even know how many people contributed to the mixture. It may be a real an interpretive question. You know, is this suspect someone who could be included in that mixture when you have hits that suggest, well, is it maybe like three or to five people might have touched that handle and their DNA may be there. And, you know, the strength of DNA is also its limitation. You know, we can do testing on cells, like very few cells can be enough to generate a DNA profile, but that means just breathing on something. You know, it's so crucial that, well, COVID reasons why it's crucial that police wear masks, but, you know, a crime scene, if you have officers standing around talking to each other near the evidence, that's enough for their breath to provide enough DNA that it can alter the sample. And so it's a great thing that DNA can be used to test such small pieces of evidence, but it means that can be contaminated really, really, really easily. And so there have been hard questions about how to unravel those mixtures. You know, there are companies that have proprietary algorithms. Lawyers have said, well, we need access. We need to know what, how you unpacked this mixture because you say my client contributed and I need to understand the statistics. And companies have said, oh, no, no, that's our business model. We can't disclose it. It's proprietary. There's a really interesting case where the two proprietary algorithms, one was the prosecution, one was the defense. They came to differing conclusions about the evidence. DNA can be a really powerful tool. It can tell you a lot. But then in, in so many cases where the evidence is messier and, and there's a DNA mixture, all of a sudden DNA gets really, really tricky. So one of the things that you do in the book that is excellent and very few people do this well uh, is you weave all these stories in that just like help it come alive. I couldn't even pick one story because they're all wild to me. Oh, thank you. But did you have a story that resonates with you? I, it was like, there's like this one section where I was like, okay, and another story and another story. I'm like, we need to, I don't know what the fix is, but the labs don't seem like they are the fix. But what is there a story that for you highlights exactly why we need to pay more attention to crime labs? One of the stories that really meant the most to me because I got to spend some time with him here, here where I teach at Duke University, was the story of Keith Harward. And part of it is that I came across his case before I knew that he had asked for DNA testing when he was still in prison. And I, I came across his trial by accident. And not exactly. I mean, I was reading old Virginia murder trials to see whether I was coming across the same problematic testimony that I come across in innocent people's trials. 
And just reading these kind of trials I pulled off the shelves at random, I saw all kinds of troubling testimony. And it made me think that the stuff that happened to these innocent people who were exonerated by DNA wasn't unique. It was just the way forensic analysts were testifying throughout the 80s, 90s. And his case stood out because we were talking about bite mark comparison. It was a bite mark comparison case. And the dentist seemed so sure. They said it was very, very, very likely that it was his teeth. But there was also like blood typing at the time. And they said, oh, yeah, blood type is consistent. And there's more than one dentist. And they all said, oh, yeah, all these dentists, we all agreed it's totally his teeth. Dentists didn't work at the crime lab. They were all brought in by the police. And they were all biased by each other. And they were all wrong. But his case also unpacked larger issues at the lab because the crime lab didn't have like bite mark people. That's sort of a sideline thing that dentists do. But the state crime lab was, was thought of as one of the larger professional labs. You know, it was one of the first labs. In, it was the Virginia lab. It was one of the first in the country to embrace DNA. Like, this is a good lab. Well, the blood typing turned out to be false. And Keith Harward's you know, blood type was not consistent with that of the victim. The report was altered. And then that raises the question, well, they did it in one innocent guy's case. How about others? Well, I, I in fact, knew that I recognized the guy's name, that the same analyst at the lab testified in another person who'd been exonerated, another Virginia trial, did the same thing, uh, played down the differences and made the evidence sound like it was consistent with his blood type, when actually it was not. And, and to its credit, the lab did an audit to re-examine cases, but they didn't have a list of like who had this person testify about blood typing going back to the 80s. These, these labs often don't really have good records. They just don't have the resources, and it's not like a real scientific lab or a hospital where they pull the patient records and, well, who was seen by this doctor? You know, who got a, you know, a hip replacement from this doctor? We need to go through all those hip replacements going back 10 years because this doctor, you know, was putting them in wrong. They can't do it. And so when, when these problems come to light, often the audits that result, if any, are, are really thin, and we have no idea how many other people may have been affected. And so you don't have that kind of accountability in most places. We're seeing it right now uh, in Massachusetts. They're reopening tens and tens of thousands of cases affected by drug lab misconduct. They've realized that really all the work that these two major drug labs did was flawed. And just identifying the cases, figuring out how to make it right for people, really hard to do after things go wrong. We're seeing another scandal in D.C. right now around their firearms unit. They need to figure out who had firearms testimony from those those examiners and reopen all those cases. I hope they do it. Uh, they haven't agreed to do it yet. And that said, even if they agree to do it, it's going to take time. Every individual story is a story not just about one person whose life was destroyed. I mean, Keith Harward spent more than three decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But then he, there's this question mark, like how many other people were there who were in the exact same position, who we, whose stories we don't hear? One of the things that I also learned in the book is uh, the power of judges to intervene. What does that look like? Evidence has become somewhat modernized, and, and judges are supposed to really look at whether someone's really a reliable expert before they call them an expert and let them take the stand. And you know, if you think about trials you've seen, like depicted in the movies or whatever, you know, witnesses normally, all they can talk about is what they saw and what they heard. Otherwise, it's hearsay. It's hard for, you know, witnesses are supposed to just talk about what they perceived. Witnesses definitely don't get to just offer their opinion and say, by the way, not only did he look kind of suspicious to me, but it's my opinion he's the murderer. Witnesses can't do that. Their opinions are relevant. Uh, well, experts get to give their opinions. And the only reason why we let experts give their opinions is supposedly they have expertise. Supposedly they can use reliable methods to form conclusions about what they see, saw or heard, about what they perceived. And judges are supposed to do reliability gatekeeping. 
uh, most states and definitely the federal courts, they follow a rule that came out of a case called Daubert, where they're supposed to look at a bunch of different factors and screen whether an expert is really using reliable methods and doing it in a, in a reliable way. And, and yet, forensics have gotten a pass. And for the most part, even if defense lawyers say, like, well, how do we know how reliable a fingerprint expert is? What do we know? What's the research? How often do fingerprint experts get it right versus wrong? Judges have often said, well, we don't need to ask those questions. That's very interesting, but I'm sure they don't get it wrong very often. And, you know, we've been using fingerprints for 100 years, so what's the big deal? And so you ask them, well, how about bite mark evidence? Oh, you know, we don't know how reliable it is. There are no studies. We have no idea. But, you know, we've been using that in court for at least a few dozen years, so what's the big deal? And, you know, you go discipline after discipline, and judges have just sort of said, oh, reliability, very nice. You know, it would be nice if we knew about how reliable this stuff was. And we don't, but, you know, we've been using it, so, so let's keep using it. I think it's an embarrassment that judges haven't taken their role seriously, especially in criminal cases. You know, we have a battle of the experts frequently in civil cases where you have high-paid experts on both sides, and judges hear one point of view, they hear another point of view, and sometimes they say, wait a minute, I don't think there's enough research to allow an expert to make these claims about, you know, whether this chemical could have caused birth defects or whether this chemical could have tainted a water supply. The studies aren't there. Well, in criminal cases, they don't ask whether the studies are there. They just sort of say, oh, sure, you know, let the jury weigh the evidence. The jurors, I'm sure, can cast a critical eye if there are any issues here. You know, here and there, judges, uh, especially as part of scientific panels, have said, like, my colleagues on the bench, they're not looking at the evidence. They're not looking at forensics. I, I keep telling them that it's part of their job. Lawyers keep telling judges it's part of your job. And, and judges are just really reluctant to exclude evidence in criminal cases. Many of them were former prosecutors themselves. It's a little cognitive dissonance there. Like, they put fingerprint experts on the stand. They put the ballistics people on the stand. Another piece of it, though, is that whenever they have raised questions about forensics, the forensics community has often gone ballistic, uh, put, put real pressure to say, like, you know, you don't mess with our forensics. You shouldn't be asking these questions. It's not your job. Trust us. We get it right. There's so much more we can talk about. One of the last questions I ask about forensics explicitly is, is there anywhere doing it right like, is there a model somewhere that you see? Yeah, so we can, you know, forensics could be like other types of tests where we test the testers. We should know how good these experts are. If someone says, you know, I'm, I'm expert at linking firearms, well, do we have any statistics? Do we know what the method is? Do we know how reliable firearms work is? It's actually okay if we don't, as long as we give this person realistic tests and see, like, okay, we'll give you 100 different shell casings and see which ones you correctly match. So we know, we know how good you are. And that way, this person could tell the jury, yes, I'm, I'm an expert. Like, I pass with flying colors. When you, you give me hard bullet casings, you give me easy ones. I, I link them correctly. Now, I suspect that for firearms, actually, in particular, and for other methods, that's not going to happen. We're going to learn that many of these people who say they are experts, they don't know how good they are. They never get tested. Um, and they may be wrong. They may be confident because no one ever checks their work. No one's ever told them whether they're getting it right or wrong. When they've done some of these studies to look at error rates in some of these fields, the error rates have been really, really high. And also a lot of people say that the evidence is just inconclusive because they know they're being tested and they think that, well, it's not wrong or right if you say the evidence is inconclusive. Uh, so we, we need to test these people. You know, it, it's been really interesting in some fields where people have sort of had professional credentials and, you know, they, they, they feel like a star and then they actually get tested. We've learned a lot of humbling things about experts. The TSA learned this. They, they've run fake and real bombs to see whether the people who look at screens all day at the airport, it's all like actually doing forensics work. You're looking at screens. It's tedious. 
you got to keep things moving, but the stakes are really high. The first time, like 95% of the bombs went through and didn't get detected. There was a scandal. There was like a leadership shakeup at the TSA. They had different training, different procedures. They ran the same test a couple of years later, and 75% got through. That was better, but still not good. And so the you know, same thing with clinical laboratories. They do serious proficiency testing to find out how good cancer screeners are, for example. Because if they're looking at slides all day and they miss that some of the cells are cancerous, that's someone's life. That could have been treatable cancer. And, and there's federal law that says that the clinical labs have to be subject to that kind of rigorous testing because lives are at stake. Well, there's no federal law. There's no state law for crime labs. They aren't regulated. We need to regulate them like we would a real scientific lab and take them seriously as scientists. They, they want to be taken seriously as scientists in court. They want to be able to testify as experts and say that they are reaching conclusions about evidence. Well, we should take them seriously as scientists, provide them the resources, sure, but also regulate them so they have to be subject to real quality controls just like real labs. And, you know, we have people spending decades of their lives in prison because of forensics. You know, we all take forensics really seriously. We all assume that this stuff is infallible. I'm, I'm sure that most people would convict someone if the fingerprints matched, if the gun matched. But we actually have no idea how good that match was. The expert says it's an ID or a source identification. They say, you know, I've never made a mistake in my experience. And they testify with confidence. They describe their equipment and their years of experience. And they've worked on thousands of cases. They've never gotten it wrong. But they actually have no idea how often they get it right or wrong because they're never tested. And that's what we need. Boom, boom. Everybody, you should have already gotten this book. You should have gotten this book yesterday. The book is that good. Uh, it'll blow your mind. I have a million more questions, more time. We can see you in front of the pot. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Ponte of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.